Hello, and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In today's episode, we look at the 1958 movie, I Want to Live, written by Nelson Gidding and Don Mankiewicz, directed by Robert Wise and starring Susan Hayward. To get us started, here is a synopsis. The movie tells the true story of Barbara Graham, a habitual criminal convicted of murder and facing execution. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We get in depth on every aspect of the plot, so if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. So just a few announcements real quick before we get started. June is going to be a very star-studded guest month for us. First, on our June 14th episode, we'll be talking with Doug McCambridge from the podcast Good Times Great Movies. This is one of my current podcast obsessions. They look at the good, the bad, and everything in 80s movies. And I'm not going to lie, I've laughed out loud a lot listening to Doug and Jamie talk. But we're going to need your help for this. We want to know which Whoopi Goldberg movie from 1987 you have been dying to hear us talk about. We're going to have a poll up on Twitter and Facebook, or you can just email us your your pick. The two movies that are in the running is Fatal Beauty, where Whoopi plays the cop, and she has all these amazing outfits and goes undercover, and it's just a lot of fun. Or do you want to see her as the burglar in Burglar? Check out the poll for that cast your vote and on our next episode we will announce the winner and also check out good times great movies and have some fun laughing along with them now for our june 28th episode we are going to have an interview with author michelle w smith and she's going to be talking about her new book widows in law this is a mystery that looks at the relationship between a mom, her daughter, and the stepmom as they try to basically stay alive after the man that links them all is killed. So if you want to read the book, we're going to try not to do too many spoilers with that one since it is a, a fairly new release. But you can get the book at major retailers, online. I've been listening to the audio version and that's really good. So keep a look out for those two episodes coming up. We also want to tell you that Noir City Austin is this weekend. We'll be there with Cole and Erica from the Magic Lantern podcast. So if you want to come see some really great movies and possibly meet Eddie Muller from Turner Classic Movies Noir Alley, he'll be there doing introductions to all of the movies. That's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. So come on out and say hi. Oh, so Lacey is not with us today. She is at the end of her school semester and then also her training program. She is training to become a life coach right now, and she's almost done with that. But with both of those combined, she just kind of was, you know, there's only a certain amount of time and brain power, and she just isn't with us right now. But I do have with us Laura Ray. Hi, Laura. Hello. It's it's the double Laura, it's Laura team. And Laura. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for for being with us today. Very happy to be here. And thanks for introducing me to this crazy movie we're going to talk about. 
Well, before we start talking about the movie, I just want to say that the reason we picked this movie is, I don't know if everybody knows, but Lacey and I are sisters. Our Nana, she turned 95 this month. This is one of her favorite movies. Susan Hayward is her favorite actress. And so we are dedicating this episode to her. Our Nana is a very strong lady. She's lived all over the world. She ran the first self-service gas station in Austin. Youngest of eight children, mother of five. She's the queen of sass and the biggest flirt you'll ever meet. (laughs) She defied gender norms because she wanted to be a boy. One of my favorite stories from her is she dressed like a boy. She had a boy's haircut. She played baseball and she was out with her dad one day and the guys that were talking to him said a dirty word. I don't know what the word was. She just said a dirty word. (laughs) And her dad was like, don't say that in front of my daughter. And the guys were like, oh, I thought that was a boy. Oh my gosh. So he forced her to start wearing dresses after that. And she was... (laughs) She was not happy about it. (laughs) Wow, that's an amazing story. So we just want to say happy birthday, Nana. And we're going to have a special Patreon bonus episode talking with her about this movie. That is so cool. I'm so glad you told me that that was the reason you selected it. Um, That's really amazing. And you know what? It's, It's a very interesting film. I'm excited to dive in. I also feel like the fact that this is one of her favorite movies says a lot about her. <laughs> well, you know what? I think I told you this, Laura, that recently I've been like maybe a little bit too obsessed with true crime stories. Um, I've been diving really deep into like podcasts and documentary series. I'm going to have to pump the brakes because I feel like I'm going to start getting really paranoid really soon. But all that to say, I think it's, I, I, I love scary things. I love mysteries. Um, I love true crime, learning about the criminal justice system. And there's so much about this movie that, that is very interesting. And, um, you know, of course, I'm very sad as well. But I can completely understand why she would be fascinated with it and enjoy it. Let's jump into it. This movie was adapted from the letters written by Barbara Graham, who the movie is about, and newspaper articles written by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ed Montgomery. He actually wrote uh, the screenplay for it. I don't think it's the one that ended up being filmed. No, because that was written by two other guys. But according to an article on Turner Classic Movies, that was what his, his screenplay was what got the producer interested in it. Because the producer... Walter Wenger, apparently it rhymes with danger. (laughs) Um, He did a stint in prison in 1951 when he shot and wounded the agent of his wife, Joan Bennett, because he thought they were having an affair. Mm. During his time in jail, he became interested in a real life case in which a woman was put to death despite some evidence that she wasn't guilty of the crime. He saw the screenplay and decided that he wanted to make this movie. He couldn't find anyone to finance the project because he had been in prison. You know, that kind of... Nowadays, I don't think that ruins your reputation too much. But back then, I guess it did. Made it a little difficult. Somehow he did. It, it, I, I didn't find exactly how he ended up getting the money for it. But he sent the script to Susan Hayward and he had done a lot to help establish her career. And so she just said, yeah, I'll do it. And he said, well, don't you want to see the script? Uh, Do you want to know what it's about? And she said, Walter, with all you've done for me, I wouldn't question anything you suggest I do. Aw, wow. So she's, yeah. 
And, of course, it ended up, she won the Academy Award for this performance. She'd been nominated five times, but this was her only win. Oh, wow. I didn't realize she'd been nominated five times before. Yeah, she she won four different awards for this this movie, which, I mean, she's fantastic in it. She is, I agree. We open on, you know, the credits, and her name, what just caught me was how big her name was. It sure was. It's like, it doesn't matter who else is in this movie. <laughs> it's like, Susan Hayward. That's it. <laughs> it made me think of in um, There Will Be Blood, how the his name was almost bigger than the title sequence in There Will Be Blood, like the title of the actual movie. Um, I feel like a lot of times if it's a very big star, they just get bigger font, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the and bigger I'm, the star, the bigger the font. I'm sure there's some stars that probably were like, this is, you know, you have to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the case with this, but yeah, her name was just, because that's what I wrote down, big. <laughs> and so we open on the this really long sequence in this club. The angles are all weird and mm-hmm. everything's kind of lopsided and cattywampus and kind of distorted and there's all this... Disjointed, yeah. Yeah, loud jazz music playing. I don't know, it almost made me feel... Kind of like how you feel when you're drunk. Yeah, it did feel that way. Um, it was like destabilizing, like especially like you mentioned, because the, the angles of the camera uh, shots were so off balance. So it made me as an audience member feel off balance. But that's yeah. a good description. Like you've been partying uh, a little bit too much. <laughs> I recently had this weird health thing where I had a virus that caused an attack of vertigo. And then I had all these medicines that were trying to help with it. But that's kind of how I felt every day was that I was drunk, Mm -hmm. but without any of the, like, good parts of being drunk. And that's that's what this opening sequence made me feel like. Like, Mm -hmm. I was back on that medicine, and it was... I don't know if that's what the director was going for, but I found it to be a very, like, just drew you in right away into this world and what was happening. It was a bit jarring, too, to have that be the first thing uh, that you see uh, when you start a film. And it was a really long scene, too. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) At one point, I... I wrote down gross um, in my notes. And the reason for that, you and I both made a, a sound at this point, Laura. It was the shot of a um, female, probably in her early 20s, um, sitting down. And she had a cup in front of her. And then someone walks up and puts a shot in the cup. And as soon as that person comes into the frame, we see it's like someone that could be her grandfather or great-grandfather. And he puts his arm around her in a kind of seductive way. And it was... Both you and I were both like, ugh. Yeah, she also made a face yeah. when he poured the alcohol in her drink. Yeah. She did not look comfortable with the situation. That that was really creepy. <laughs> and after this long scene, we get our first look at Barbara Graham. She's in this hotel room, and you see her get up out of the bed, but you don't see the guy mm-hmm. who's in the bed. You just see her talking to him and then, like, his smoke. I'm sure that had to do with the production code at the time because, you know, you couldn't show a man and woman in bed together. Oh, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. I I noticed that the shot was very, very dark. Um, Good note that that's probably the reason. (laughs) She goes into the bathroom and then these police officers come in and they're going to arrest the guy. She has seen a picture in his his wallet of his family, so he's obviously a bit of a creep because Mm -hmm. he's been having an affair with 
her, mm-hmm. and they're going to arrest him. It is a, quote-unquote, federal crime transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes. I had to write that down because it was so fascinating. And so what I found out about that is it's the Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, and it was voted into effect in 1910. In its original form, the act made it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or any other immoral purpose. Wow. So basically it was trying to keep down on human trafficking. Gotcha. But because of the ambiguous language about immorality, it was used to, I guess, like crack down on, I guess, people having affairs or things like that. So it was revised in 1978 and then again in 1986. And now it's just about the transport for purposes of prostitution or illegal sexual acts. Sure. Wow, that's so fascinating. But yeah, it was really weird because they came in and they were like, we knew that you came across the border. It was like, how did you know that? Well, you yeah, don't, that's really you don't have anything else to do except follow these two people that are probably having an affair at most. <laughs> so she said that she paid for the room, and they arrest her. And mm-hmm. so basically, what she was arrested for was prostitution. Right. And so she saved him from that federal crime. Yeah, and I guess from the scandal and his wife finding out sure. and stuff. Yeah. And so it just continues on with party scenes and we basically just see what the wildlife that Barbara Graham lived and one of my favorite lines during this big party that they're at is she's out on the balcony with this guy and he's trying to get her to go somewhere with him and her friend walks out and she says don't you ever knock before entering a balcony I wrote that line down too I was like I love the sass it's fantastic (laughs) I like her sass but we see here just how popular she is with the guys. Yes. She's the life of this party. Mm-hmm. It's also where we meet a couple of her friends, and they ask her to give them an alibi. I'm, I can't remember what they're charged with. You know, they want her to say that she was with them, so they mm-hmm. won't get charged with this crime. After she agrees to do this, her friend says, no, that's, that's too much for me. Perjury is where I draw the line, you know. We can do drugs and prostitution and that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to perjure myself. She goes out to dance, and she literally kicks off her shoes. Yeah. And just starts dancing, like takes over the whole room. Absolutely. And then she gets five years for perjury. It does jump to that very quick. And then very quickly after that, we're seeing her, after she's got out of prison, she's been in for a year, I believe, for perjury. She got five years. So I put one year in prison and then five years probation. Oh, yeah, that's what I, one, okay, I wrote that too. One year for perjury, five probation. You're right. I think maybe the real Barbara Graham got five years. Sure. Because I know that this movie obviously takes some liberties. It is like, you know, based in truth, but that there are things, of course, uh, about the film that aren't exactly true to what happened. Yeah, a couple of things, like in the movie, we only see her married one time and we only see one of her children, but she was actually married three times and she had three children. Right. But a lot of the other things are true, like she talks about going to the same reform school that her mom was sent to, and that Mm -hmm. was true. Mm -hmm. Both her and her mom survived by being prostitutes. Obviously, movies do take some liberties just because... 
mistake. They cover a lot of time in right. this movie. Definitely. We jump really fast to Herbie getting out of prison, and she's trying to cash a phony check at this bar. Mm-hmm. And the bartender saves her from this cop, mm-hmm. and then introduces her to these other criminals. Yes. She very quickly gets entwined with more criminals, unfortunately. I, th- I thought this was very telling one of the guys asks her, what do you do? And she says, the best I can. Absolutely. And, and in some senses, that was a little sad to hear. Because um, I feel like she, it, it seems that she's sort of given up in a sense, that this is really the only life that she's known, and, and therefore it's the life that she continues, you know? Yeah, she seems like a very smart, capable mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. I've never been in a situation like that before. So I can only imagine how, if that's what you know, it's hard to get out of that. Definitely. It it, it seems like, and, you know, we see that more and more, that it's sort of just a trap that she keeps getting entangled in and having has a very difficult time finding her way out, even when she tries. Because, like, the next thing, I mean, we see a couple of, I know, cuts of, like, her the different ways in which she was swindling people playing poker. She's like the getaway car, it looks like, for a robbery in one scene. It's sort of just like a montage of different, you know, things that she... Illegal acts that she's engaging in so that we get kind of an idea of, of the different types of crimes that she's she's committing. But then she says that she's quitting to get married. That's, like, something I quoted. I was like, oh. <laughs> she's like, I'm done. I'm going to get married. I'm going to, like, try to have a normal life, quote, unquote. Yeah, she wanted to get out of the crime, you know, be a housewife. Mm -hmm. However, she chose the wrong guy to do it with because Mm -hmm. he was a gambler and a drug addict. Right. Seemed that he had a gambling addiction, it seemed like. Uh, And I guess he was also a drug addict. I found that out about the real guy. I don't know if that was made clear in the movie or not. Right. Right before she leaves to get married, there's this shot of a house of cards that gets knocked down. Ooh, Yeah. That was very symbolic. <laughs> and again, it's a really long shot on that, too. I did. I wrote long shot of cards because it started to feel way too long. <laughs> yeah. I, I was curious, too, why why they lingered on that so long. They did. There was a couple. They lingered on a license plate for a really long time, and I, I wondered if that was going to ever come back, um, and it doesn't from what I could tell. Oh, I remember that Do you now. remember that license plate? I was like, oh, we're supposed to be, again, my, my brain from watching so many, you know, like CSI, like crime shows. I'm like, oh, is, is this information that we need to keep in our brains for later? But it didn't appear to be. <laughs> Just for some reason, there was yeah. a long shot of a license plate. Overall, I feel like this movie was a little longer than it needed to be. Agreed. Like there was some places where they could have cut. Agreed. You know, at least maybe like 15 20 minutes out of it and I still think it would have been a really good movie. There there were bits that dragged. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's had it with her husband. He wants the money that she has and she says it's it's all I've got. It's the last of it. She slaps him and then he slaps her while she's holding the baby. He does. And it it's a much more intense hit. Like it it knocks her to the, I mean almost to the ground, right? Yeah. And so she gives him the money and she says it's the last she'll ever get from me. Mm-hmm. And he leaves. Now, later on in the movie we will see him again, but in real life they never found him. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Um yeah, he just he disappeared just and was disappeared. never heard from again. Hmm. So then She's broke, goes back to giving phony checks, and the landlord's about to kick her out Mm -hmm. because she gave him a check from a bank where she didn't even have an account. Yeah. 
he figured that out. I'm not sure how she thought she was going to get away with that one. I don't know. I, you know, it's so interesting nowadays. We, we just use checks so rarely. I, I feel like, I, I suppose because it would take a little bit of time for the check once you gave it to the bank for them to actually like deposit it and find out that it was fraudulent. So it gives you time to scheme something else or get away. Um, because that did happen a lot with like phony checks being a um, you know a way people would fraud others. So it must have just been the, the time it took to actually determine that a check was phony. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a felony to pass a bad check. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, she's out of options now, so she goes back to her two criminal pals and is going to get back with them because she needs money. She takes the baby to her mother-in-law and leaves him with her because she said that if she's arrested, they'll put the baby in foster care. Mm-hmm. I took this might be a little too far down the line, but I made a note about the baby playing with poker chips because I thought that shot was really disturbing. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right before she's. That's right before she takes him. Baby's on the floor playing with a bunch of poker chips, and this one guy almost steps on the baby mm-hmm. as he leaves. Yep. And he acts really annoyed that the baby was like in his way or something. It's a real stand-up people, and 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 that are you know she's associated with. In yeah. case you hadn't noticed, <laughs> this is the guy. He's going to Mexico. His oh, two this pals. Guy. He's, he's the worst man. Yeah. His two pals say that's not a good idea, but he's going anyway, and he asks Bar Graham to go with him, and she says no. You know, he's a real sleazebag and says something about, I thought you'd never met a type you didn't like, and she said, well, you are, and <laughs> believe me, it's purely personal. I really liked that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she she's very good um, with the sass and the insults. She, she can hand them out well and with no reservation. <laughs> Oh, and then he said, I think he said this to her because I wrote it down, a tramp, but smart and good looking too. I know that the the police called her a tramp. That's what it was. Because I sure wrote that down. That was really disturbing. Yeah, so (laughs) there's this long scene, not too long after this, where she's going to go visit her baby and the police follow her. There's so many police following her. I wrote this down. They felt like they were... A thousand of them uh, just following her and it felt excessive i, I wrote that down yeah <laughs> i was like good night i mean at this point i didn't know what they were you know going to be accusing her of um and I, you know of course we'll find that out but, but even still it felt like there were too many cops <laughs> yeah there were a lot of cops and then when they finally do get to this warehouse place where this gang is hanging out then there's this huge crowd of onlookers that have like food and they're just hanging out and like having a party seriously i was like there are so many bystanders with popcorn question mark wtf question mark (laughs) yeah there was a kid with a hot dog and a soda seriously it this felt ridiculous (laughs) and so they you know they cut all the lights to the building and they've got these giant spotlights and they call the names out and they're like come out well this one guy starts just beating her up Mm-hmm. He's punching her in the face, and so she's kind of dazed and disoriented and trying to fix her hair. Yeah, they, the cops say, because they're calling her to come out, and they, they announce that she has 60 seconds, and she starts to comb her hair very calmly. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, and then she walks out, and 
all the photographers just the run pre- up. The press went nuts. It was crazy paparazzi. Yeah. <laughs> and she's holding this little stuffed tiger that was her son's. That's what it was. I, I wondered about the significance of the tiger. And they arrest her and they're interrogating her. Thankfully, a lot of these interrogation tactics are no longer legal. Thank goodness, because it was ridiculous. And she continually asked for a lawyer. She mentioned several times that she wanted to have a lawyer and they were completely ignoring her. And I was asking you, Laura, at the time, I was like, was, isn't it the case that if you say you want a lawyer, you don't have to talk anymore until you have one? But I guess at this, in this time period, maybe that wasn't the case. Let's look it up real quick. So the Miranda rights, which are you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided to you. That wasn't put into effect until 1966. Wow. So that probably was the reason that they could just ignore her continued requests for a lawyer. I also think that there's laws now about how long somebody can be questioned and stuff like that. And there was... One part, I think, where they talk about how many hours her pals had been questioned. Right. I'm not sure how many, but you're you're right. Weren't they? They were questioned for a really long time. Yeah, really long time. Mm-hmm. One of the cops says she's a tramp, but smart and good looking, too. <laughs> and then another one calls her a slut, says that he wants to spread her out and stamp her into the ground. The yeah. way that these cops talked to her was baffling. It's horrifying it's it you know it's a room full of men mm-hmm. and she's holding her own against them but i can't what what an awful awful situation absolutely and they're trying to get her to confess they're absolutely trying to intimidate her yeah you know i mean from from the get-go or trying to get her to turn over on her friends which right. she keeps saying that she doesn't even know why she's there yeah she and you know i, I know they, they try just like you said they try to get her to provide information about her two um male associates the ones that she's been working with and she won't rat on them i know she says something along the lines of that she won't rat on anyone they book her she goes to jail she's got a twenty-five thousand dollar bail which her cellmate says, that's a lot. Yeah. What did you do? I think by this point she has learned that she's being charged for murder. Or is it right after that? When it's revealed to her, everything changes because she started, I, I noted that she started yelling, I know nothing about any murder. Because before this, while she was, you know, you could tell she's stressed out, she seems to think that whatever it is is going to be another, you know, charge like perjury or you know another crime that she's committed before and you know is familiar with that she's done and so as soon as there's mention of murder you can see the absolute shift and she starts screaming i know nothing about any murder and starts panicking which you know as an audience lead me to led me to think oh so it seems like she didn't have anything to do with this but again this is just first impression of like when she hears it for the first time she seemed so shocked by it one of the newspaper guys says that she's young good looking belligerent immoral and guilty as hell (laughs) yeah i I wrote that down too (laughs) and one thing that i really loved with these shots in the prison especially i noticed it when her friend peg comes to visit her Mm -hmm. which was her friend earlier who said that she wouldn't commit perjury with her right peg has since gotten married has some kids and she tells barbara that she told her husband everything 
everything that they did and he still loves her and you know they've got a happy family but they kept doing these shots where their face it was a close-up on the faces and it was just framed by the bars oh yeah and it just gave you this kind of claustrophobic feeling of just having that box around the face and being able to see nothing outside of it Mm -hmm. good point and so her friend is going to go visit her son and she finds out from her lawyer that her associates claim that she was the one who actually murdered the lady. Yeah. And when we find out that it was a very violent killing, mm-hmm. that they said that she basically pistol whipped her to death. Yeah. And she claims that she was home with her husband and baby, but her husband can't be found, so she basically doesn't have an alibi because there's nobody to corroborate where she was. And her lawyer is very um, firm about the fact that if she doesn't have an alibi, they don't have a case. I mean, he, he's putting a lot of pressure on her um, from from the beginning. I mean, we see in the next scene a letter that he's written her. It zooms in on him expressing again how important it is for her to have an alibi in order for him to be able to help her. I felt like that was an excessive amount of pressure he was putting on her. Well, <laughs> and I know it's true. I mean, he he's correct that you know she's in a tricky situation if she doesn't have an alibi. But he, I, I was like, it sort of felt like he was leading her in the direction of what ends up happening. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that too. Oh, I wonder if he was part of it. I don't think so. He seemed to be just a lawyer that really didn't want to be, take this case, but he had to. That was the impression that I got from the get go. Like, I'm stuck with this case. I'm going to try to do whatever I can, but I also, like, I don't want to be here. (laughs) She really wanted the public defender. Yeah, she mentioned that a few times. But the guys got the public defender. Mm -hmm. So she is forced, well, I guess she's not forced, but she, you know, a lot of pressure is put on her to have an alibi. Yes. And so her cellmate, Rita, says, hey, I have this friend that is coming to visit me. His name is Ben. And if you want, you could pay him some money and he could be your alibi. So she doesn't want to do this, but she feels like she has no choice. I felt a lot of sympathy for her because, you know, in this, again, in the scene that we saw in the letter, there's just, there was a lot of pressure. I think she felt like she had no other option. She was very, in a state of desperation, it seemed like. And so she agrees to this. She's going to pay the guy money. He's going to say that they were together in a hotel and he's going to be her alibi. Well, he keeps asking her, so where were you really? Where were you really? You know, this is my neck on the line. He's like, it's important that I know the truth. And it felt very suspicious. I was like, but why would it be important for you to know the truth? Like, your job is just, if if you really are what you say you are, to pretend to be with me, have to have been with me in this particular night. But he pushes her until she says, fine, I was with um, the two men that night, the one who who are saying that she committed the murder. She admits that she was with them. My reading of this was that the only reason she said it was because he kept, he physically kept walking away saying, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, I read it that way too. She started out by saying, no, I really was with my husband. I just can't get him to, to be an alibi because I haven't talked to him. I don't know where he is. And you're right. The the fellow that, you know, is saying he's going to be her alibi, he starts to walk away. She, again, it feels like an act of desperation. I've got no other choice. So sure, I'll say what you want me to say. We move on to the trial. Quote, queen of the murder mob. Quote, Babs did it. These are like newspaper headlines that we get to see. <laughs> they like zoom in on 
I think one of them is also Bloody Babs. I yeah, that was the nickname they gave her was Bloody Babs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love one of the newspapers has this close up picture on her hands. Oh yes, and there's the the murderous hands. I'm like, oh god, come on, <laughs> really? <laughs> and so. Edward Montgomery, he asks her for an exclusive interview. And she said, here's your exclusive Bloody Babs shuns press. <laughs> oh, the sass. I do love it. We find out that the guy who went to Mexico basically turned state's evidence and is naming her and he's getting off scot-free. Isn't that convenient? Yeah, the lawyer asks him, do you think this is fair that you participated in this crime and you get off? And he's like, well, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. And then they also ask him, uh, he was given a gun and they said, well, if you weren't planning on participating in the violence, why did you take the gun? And he says, you know, I've asked myself the same question. What an answer. And it's just fine. It, it, it you know, he gets, gets away with that answer. <laughs> now in real life, these guys found out that he was talking to the police, I guess, before they were arrested and killed him. Oh, I didn't realize that. If, uh, that was on Wikipedia. So, I mean, granted, I guess take that for a grain of salt, but that's what I found out. How interesting. This is the same fellow that she rejected earlier on who wanted him, her to come to Mexico with him. And she said, heck no. Yeah, and almost uh, stepped on her baby. Yes. This lovely, wonderful fellow. Yeah. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. (laughs) And then the next witness that they call is Ben, her alibi, who was actually a police officer. Man, I tell you what, like, that scene, that stressed me out so much because he starts coming up and she's really shocked. She's like, what is he doing here? She's like, why is he a a witness for the prosecution? And we as the audience are all collectively like, no, we knew it. Why did you trust him? (laughs) I was so stressed out. And then when she tells her lawyer that that's Ben, that's my alibi, the lawyer asks if he can approach the judge and tries to withdraw from the case. This this lawyer is done. I told you, he was done from the moment he started talking to her. He's like, I don't want to be here. I'm over this, but I'm going to do, like, the very bare minimum work. And then as soon as, which I can't say I totally blame him because she did lie to him completely. And he's just like, can I just, can I walk away right now because my, um, you know, my client has lied to me and I'm, I'm, I'm essentially done with this BS. <laughs> but it was really, it was frustrating. I was frustrated with that lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to go into the movie and just kind of slap him a couple yeah, times. Yeah, I felt that way as well. I'm like, do your job, dude. Do it, man. I mean, and I know, again, I know she lied to him, so that's got to be very frustrating as a lawyer. But man, he, he wasn't even going to try to, like, find a way to help her at this point. He's like, no. okay, I'm out. Yeah, he's just like, peace. <laughs> so they play the recording of the meeting where she says, all right, all right, I was with them. Mm-hmm. As yeah. she's leaving that day, she said, I'm innocent. I swear on my baby's life and may God strike him dead if I'm lying. Which, I mean, you don't get much more intense yeah. than that. I mean, it, even for something that I'm 100% sure of, I just wouldn't swear on someone's life. I'm just like, that's maybe I'm too superstitious. That just freaks me out. <laughs> it's like too much pressure. Even if I know it to be true, yeah. it's still... 
it's a, a frightening thing to do. So in the movie, they find her husband, mm-hmm. but I think I mentioned already that in real life, he's never heard from again. And so he doesn't corroborate her alibi. He's of no help, yeah. She she is convicted mm-hmm. and sentenced to death. And she. Th- this is another quote of hers. Have you ever been desperate? Do you know what it is like? And that I saw was actually something, she said something very similar, uh, Barbara Graham in, in real life. There's a real quote of hers that's extremely similar to that. And in a lot of ways, I, I felt so much sympathy at that point. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go into too much of it, because I'm, I'm really not sure if she's innocent or guilty. But I, I will say that, you know, based on this film in particular, I don't feel like there was nearly nearly enough evidence to have her convicted of murder. It's unbelievable. The actual quote is, oh, have you ever been desperate? Do you know what it means not to know what to do? Wow. And her last words were, good people are always so sure that they're right. Dang. Yeah. Yeah, she called them out. She sure did. Obviously, this is jumping to the end a little bit, but we know how it ends. Mm -hmm. She was the third woman executed in California and the 36th woman executed by the United States government since 1900. Wow. Gosh. And so she was the third woman to be executed by gas chamber. Is that correct? Wow. Yes. The third woman to be executed by the gas chamber. I don't know how the other ones were executed. Yikes. (laughs) You know, we we had a long discussion about this, Laura, um, about the different ways in which someone can be executed by death penalty and what is still used today and how long said methods were used. And it's crazy. The gas chamber technically is not like unable to be used. I really figured it was gone and it has not been done. I want to say since the nineties, but there was a prisoner in 2018. I think it was in Tennessee who lethal injection would have caused him immense pain because of a disease that he has. And so he asked for the gas chamber. I don't know that he's even been executed yet, but I thought that was insane that that was like the, the he had, he requested it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that they're able to still in, in most States. I, that's something that I know it's not gone. It's not absolutely abolished from the U S but I don't know where it's still done. If anywhere. Well, the electric chair is still an option, too. That blows my mind. <laughs> um, which I I watched this really interesting um, clip from a recent episode of John Oliver that Lacey recommended, and I'll, I'll link in the show notes, but it was talking about lethal injection and how it's considered to be very humane. But the fact is that no doctor helped with it because the doctor's Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm. Absolutely. And, you know, killing somebody is harming them. So no doctor could help putting this method together. And it, it, it's really kind of terrible. And then in this um, segment that John Oliver did, there was this, I think it was a senator, that was suggesting other more humane ways to execute people. And his two suggestions were a firing squad and the guillotine. I'm speechless. I That is so horrifying that I have no words. <laughs> so... There's a lot of countries that don't even have the death penalty anymore. I'm amazed with how many don't. I, I, I didn't realize that again, you know, this, this watching this film really got me thinking about the death penalty and capital punishment. And I was very curious as, how, uh, as to how many countries still 
have the death penalty. And I was more amazed by how many don't, just like you said. I mean, most countries in Europe don't. I believe uh, most in Europe uh, abolished the death penalty in the 1960s. So, I mean, still, I suppose that is still fairly recently. But considering, I mean, we're in 2019 and... There doesn't appear to be any end in sight in the United States. Regardless of how you feel about that, I do think it's it's really interesting that we we are one of the, the countries that, that are left. That was one of the things that one of the reviewers said about this movie is he, he had been somebody who covered the actual trial, and he said this movie was basically just propaganda against the death penalty. That's really interesting. I didn't feel that way. It, it get, definitely got me thinking about the death penalty, Um which I appreciated because it's something that I feel like it's a subject I often avoid thinking about. And I, I appreciated that aspect of it. But God, propaganda? I don't know. That's a little extreme. Yeah. <laughs> One of the reviews from the New York Times said, anyone who can sit through this ordeal without shivering and shuddering is made of stone. Miss Hayward plays it superbly under the consistently sharp direction of Robert Wise and has shown here a stunning mastery of the staccato realistic style. From a loose and wisecracking B-girl, she moves on to levels of cold disdain and then plunges to depths of terror and bleak surrender as she reaches the end. I want to live as a picture to shake you and give you pause. Absolutely. I I would agree with that review completely. Particularly, um, you know, as you get to the end, I felt really sick to my stomach when we get to the actual scene in which she's executed. I mean, I'm I'm jumping way ahead, but I thought that they, they handled that scene in a way that, again, really did shake me to my core. Um, I didn't want to have to watch the end. To be honest, I would have been happy, Laura, if we had just turned it off as it got to that point. Because oh, I'm sorry. No, no, but I mean, I think it's a, a testament to the filmmakers. They were really showing kind of the horrific nature of, of the act of, of executing someone. It, it's a, a terrible thing to, to just even think about, but then to have to even watch a dramatization of it, it's... And I'll have a little bit more about that when we get to that and some other comments towards Mm -hmm, the end. mm -hmm. One thing, this is a weird thing about me. I don't like close-ups on mouths. The fact that they did a close-up just on the judge's mouth when he was sentencing her made that scene all that much worse for me. Because that's all you saw was just his mouth saying these horrible words. Yeah, I could see why I it very dramatic in and of itself, but especially if you don't like, if you don't like a big old shot of a mouth, that definitely was all up in your face. Yeah, <laughs> she keeps her spunk. You know, she's on death row for whatever reason. She gets, I guess, to like wear some of her own clothes. I know. I wrote a lot of notes about this because I was like, wow, this jail cell is really nice. It's like the size of my home, <laughs> and it's like in really pristine condition. And uh, she has a record player, and she has she on sure this, does. like, lacy black nightgown. She got to wear her, like, gorgeous nightgown, which they told her was, quote-unquote, too provocative, um, which I LOL'd at um, in my notes. <laughs> Take off that nightgown. It's too provocative. <laughs> so she just strips and yeah. says, I'll sleep in the raw. Yeah. The guard tells her that she's foolish to make trouble on her first night, which, you know, the the rule keeper in me is like, don't cause problems. I know. I've it's... seen Orange is the New Black. <laughs> right. And she she's so the opposite. She's like, what are you going to do to me at this point? <laughs> she's, she's starting to get to that doesn't give an F point where, yeah. like, you know, I, I'm losing everything. So why should I care about something like this? 
And so she is sent to see this psychologist and the newspaper man, Edward Montgomery, who had been, you know, reporting all these terrible things about her and thought she was guilty, is starting to believe that she might not be. Mm-hmm. And I believe he's the one, or is it her lawyer, that sets up this. But they're they're all kind of working together at this point. I believe so. She has a new lawyer at this point, too. I don't know if we mentioned that. Yes, she does. Because the, the one that was super done, he, he literally was done. Yeah. We have a new lawyer for her. <laughs> The psychologist says that she is not violent. Her crimes are forgery, prostitution, not things that harm people physically. Right. And he said that she's opposed to physical violence and that he believes that that is true. He also points out that she's left-handed. One of the um, gentlemen who's you know accusing her of you know, beating the woman to death said that she held the gun with her right hand and he's like this is something that's important to point out that she is left-handed because this was information that was available during the trial it couldn't be used in the appeal right which is such a shame it, you know it's just another thing that makes you sad and confused about uh, the, our criminal justice system certain things that i'm like oh but that would that's so important <laughs> i wish we could pop that back in and and have that be a relevant piece of information we can use. You know, one thing that I think about the British and the Australian court system that's really weird is they wear the wigs and the gowns. Mm -hmm. I, I know that this is something that they've done for like hundreds of years or whatever, but I kind of like it because there's so many inconsistencies in our trials. Like, Juries can be swayed by how nicely lawyers are dressed Mm. or how physically attractive they are. Sure. And things like that. So if your lawyers are all wearing these weird wigs and gowns that cover up their clothes, I feel like that levels the playing field a little bit more. That's a very good point that I'd never thought about. There's so many things that can uh, make a jury be biased, um, uh, you know, for or against something. So... So yeah, in any opportunity, like you said, to level the playing field, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because, you know, men in sleek, you know, really expensive suits, or if it's a female attorney and, you know, she's beautiful and stuff, that can sway male jurors and things like that. So yeah, if if everybody has on the same costume, basically, then... Sure. I don't know. Again, it's weird, but I also feel like it's not necessarily a bad idea. I, I I agree with you. And again, it's that's not something that I had ever thought about in that regard, but you make a good point. So we find out that she did lose her appeal, mm-hmm. and she's in the dentist at the time, which I feel like is also one of those things that's kind of like everybody hates going to the dentist, so you find out this really bad news when you're about to get your teeth worked on. Right, like how much worse could it get? <laughs> and she grabs the arms of the chair that she's in, And then she realizes what position she's in and she moves her hands and crosses them like over her stomach. It's really sad. Yeah. But she is granted a stay of execution. She's granted several reprieves, which just prolongs the inevitable. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things like when you have something really that you don't want to do and you have to keep waiting this is it's kind of the same thing except like if when you have to do something bad you can get over it you get yeah. past it you move 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 forward after the said negative thing in which this is you know something n- nobody knows you know 
what happens when you die. And so it, it, the amount of terror that someone must feel, it's it's not something I can comprehend, obviously, yeah. because I haven't experienced it, but it must be immense. And in one of her letters, she writes, I do want to live, Carl. I know, I wrote that. I was like, oh, here's the movie title. I want to live. Yeah. <laughs> Writing to Carl. I, I always find it fascinating if you can find the movie title within a film. And and I also find it fascinating, like, when does it happen in the movie? Is it right away? Like, right when we're induced to the characters? Or is it, like, deep in the film at the climax? So, um, and sometimes it never happens. But in this case, it's, was a, it's quite a, um intense point when she's she really is like desperately seeking a way out like she doesn't she doesn't want to die of course not when they are moving her to san quentin for the execution there are all these young kids that swarm around her car and are like like giving her support and stuff she became you know i guess kind of like a bonnie and clyde type thing where people are obsessed with quote-unquote, the bad guy. Sure, yeah. So she's, you know, a celebrity to them, and they're, obviously they can't do anything to help her, but they're at least, you know, they're giving her the support. They are, you're right. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I think, you know, it it is evident that there were people that thought she was innocent um, and were trying to support her. And then it's this point of the movie where I was like, okay, we're close to the end, and we paused it, and it was like, we are not close to the end. And that really stressed me out. Because like, how can we have like 45 minutes left of this movie? <laughs> yeah, this is another point where it was like, okay, there's a lot of interesting things that happen. But somewhere along here, I feel like there's there's just small things that could have been shortened a little bit. And snip, snip. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's still a great movie. But it is, yeah. It, especially for the end that you know is coming. I think that was what was hardest for me is we, we know most of those going into watching this film understand what, what the end is because I, I believe the synopsis even explains that, you know, this is somebody that's put to death, like is on death row. But that's very hard to have to have that information available and then you're getting to a very suspenseful part where they're giving you moments of false hope where, oh, maybe she is going to get her appeal. Oh, maybe, you know, this, this is going to be the moment which, you know, it turns around for her, and yet we we all know that we we know what the inevitable is. So it makes it more stressful if you have forty five minutes left of we know death is coming essentially. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like watching Titanic when you know like oh all these characters that we've been introduced to are about to die. Yep. She she keeps up the spirit that she has because she tells the the warden don't forget to call me at ten, <laughs> which she's supposed to be executed the next morning at ten. And the priest gives her a St. Jude medallion. He's the saint of the impossible. She paints her nails flaming red. She's, you know, she's going to go out in her style. Right. Montgomery is sticking around all night to see if the guys who accused her of doing the actual killing will recant their statement and say that she didn't do it. Their theory is that they think that she won't be executed. And so if they won't execute the person who actually committed the murder, then they won't execute those two guys. Yeah. And in real life, they executed them all. Yes. Correct. They, yeah. All on the same day. But yeah, it doesn't happen. They, they, never, they never say that, oh, she's not the one who did it. So she has a hot fudge sundae for breakfast. Man, and I'm the, going backwards, the last meal, remember we were both, in shock because they brought out a plate of like every food you could ever dream of. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a little bit of everything. 
But she says she's not hungry, which... And I don't blame her. Yeah. You know, I, the concept of a last meal is... Yeah, I, I can't imagine you would, you know, be starving. You'd have a robust appetite <laughs> knowing what's coming. You know, she's getting ready and the phone rings. Man, that phone ring was so dramatic. Um, it was extremely loud. We got a, a huge close-up of the phone. It definitely got my heart pitter-pattering. It's just a delay. It's time for her lawyer to argue her case. There was also another scene earlier where they bring a phone out of like a back room and she goes, was that back there the whole time? And they say yes, and it didn't ring once. So that was the phone for, you know, the last minute, like, oh no, and it didn't ring all night. Mm. And oh, that, that just like was a gut punch. Yeah, it breaks her heart. The phone rings again. It's been denied. So she has 15 minutes to get dressed and get ready. They roll out this carpet in front of her, almost like it's a red carpet or something. And she says, what's that for? And they said, well, you can't wear your shoes. Mm. Which she freaks out and she's like, I am wearing my shoes. Mm-hmm. And they give her a last cigarette. And then there's another phone ring. And that, again, the, the ring, they made it so freaking loud. <laughs> It felt like it was at such a different pitch than every every other sound in the film. Probably on purpose. It, it was meant, you know, for dramatic effect. An amend of writ has been filed with the state Supreme Court. You know, another delay. And we get a close-up on the medallion that she's wearing. Mm. It's denied, and the warden comes up and says, Barbara, I'm very sorry. Mm. And they make her put on this this vest thing under her clothes that has this tube on it Mm -hmm. that's to hook up to a stethoscope that's going to be outside of the gas chamber, I guess so they can know when she's dead. Mm. And then she says that she wants a mask because she doesn't want to see all these people. Which there's all these guys just like crowded around the windows of this. Watching and it's disgusting. I don't understand why in the world anyone would want to watch something like this. It baffles me yeah she had had two people with her that night a nurse because they keep people who are going to be executed on suicide watch oddly yeah (laughs) and then the matron was there with her well she'd gotten on really well with the nurse yeah but the matron and her never really bonded but the matron gives her her sleep mask to wear you know she's dressed she looks elegant right up to the end i wrote down I was like, we're going to watch? And I put like 100 question marks. Okay, question mark. I felt very disturbed by the fact that we were going to see the execution. I completely understand the choice of the filmmaker to do that. It's very powerful. Um, but it was so hard to watch. And, and and purposefully, it was very silent and very long. Like, it, it, it's a hard scene to watch. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. They do let her wear her shoes. Prior to filming the gas chamber sequence, the director actually witnessed a real execution at San Quentin in order to capture the authenticity of such a grisly event. He said in an interview with American Cinematographer, In putting it on screen, I tried to do what I could to make it as truthful as possible. The gory fact is that you watch the body in the chamber go through writhing motions and gasping for 9 to 10 minutes before being pronounced dead. What? So I tried to give the initial impact up to a point and then get away from it. I don't think I've ever gotten so deeply involved in a film in every sense as I did with this one. Ugh, nine or ten minutes. It's very quick. It's much quicker than that in the movie. Right. I am just, I'm appalled. (laughs) Again, why would you want to watch this? Why? But 
Right. People used to go to hangings and You're right. have picnics, and it was like a big event. I mean, you know, we were just talking about... I very recently watched um, some of the, the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix and listened to some uh, podcasts about Ted Bundy. And it's true that at his execution, people were, like, gathered around outside having, like, a tailgate party, essentially, in, in celebration. That's not the same as actually watching it happen, of course. But, it, you know, I, I am not going to say that I'm sad Ted Bundy's dead because I am not. However, like... The, the concept of, of watching an execution and or like celebrating partying in an execution, it's it's something I can't quite grasp. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was pro-death penalty for a very long time because I definitely feel that there are crimes that people should die for. But have you ever read any John Grisham books? Mm-mm. Okay, well, I read, I, I, I like his works and I just randomly picked up one to read called The Confession. Mm -hmm. It was one of the saddest, most disturbing books I've ever read. And basically it's his anti-death penalty book. It made me think about so many things that after that I was like, I I don't know that I could support this. Sure. A warning or a recommendation, depending on how you feel, um, either read or don't read The Confession. It like I said, it was very, very sad. A friend of mine couldn't even finish reading it because it made her so sad. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm going to definitely pick it up, but I'm, I, you know, in advance, I, I'm nervous because I have a feeling that I already have very strong feelings against the death penalty, so I'm sure that it'll be a difficult uh, piece to read. Now, again, I realize that there are arguments for it. Sure, yeah. And I, and I also want to say that I can't even imagine if you have someone that you love that's been a victim of a violent crime, like how you must feel about the person that has committed said crime and how you want them to be punished. I can't even imagine that and I won't pretend to. So I know that there's there's so many ways to feel about it. Um, I've just never been able to to fully, I mean, I've always, I've always been in, in the camp of that I'm against it and I, I've never been able to grapple with how I could feel comfortable with it, how I could feel like it, it in this circumstance it's okay. Especially because, we've talked about this, Laura, our system is, is so imperfect that we are executing people that are innocent. Um, I mean, I that video that John Oliver did, the statistic at the time of, I guess it was 2009, was that 4% of those that are on death row are innocent. That's an insane statistic. I don't know what the statistic is today, um, but... You know, that was about 10 years ago, but but that's horrifying, you know? I can't, there's no way I could ever support something like the death penalty, and particularly in an imperfect system where we are going to execute inevitably innocent people. And our system is based on if you can find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And in so many cases, especially with the different tricks and stuff that lawyers can play, mm-hmm. and people's own you know, ideas and prejudices and things like that, unless there's just like clear, clear evidence how you could find someone guilty without a reasonable doubt enough to put them to death. Sure, yeah. I, I you, you put it kind of exactly the way that I feel that we, you know, for, for that reason alone, I can't be for the death penalty. But then I zoom zoom out and I think about it in a larger sense too. And the concept of, of death being a punishment for any crime, taking a human life being a punishment for any crime, regardless of what, um, you know, what crimes that human committed. I, I can't find a way to rationalize it 
myself. So, you know, that's another reason that, that me personally am against the death penalty. But, you know, there's, you know, there, there are so many, you know, reasons to be for it as well. So being respectful for those that are, you know, for the death penalty, or again, those who have known someone who's been the victim of a, a terrible, heinous crime. I can't imagine what that must feel like and how one must want, you know, some type of, you know, justice for, for the victim of that crime. And this was a heinous crime. Oh, yeah. Reportedly, Barbara Graham gained entry to Monaghan's house by asking to use her telephone. And once she opened the door, they, you know, basically barged their way in and demanded money and jewelry from her. And when she refused to give it to him, you know, supposedly Barbara Graham pistol whipped her and then suffocated her with a pillow. They left empty-handed, even though her purse was full of about $15,000 worth of jewels and valuables. Wow. So they didn't even get anything. That's so interesting. And this, this, this old lady died. Wow. In a very violent manner. I have no answers. I know. And, you know, I, I don't know if Barbara was innocent or guilty. You know, I know that, obviously, there's lots of theories, but nobody's 100% sure. Um, I do know that based on what I've read in, in this film... I don't feel like there was nearly enough evidence to convict her, let alone to sentence her to death, just like you mentioned earlier. Well, it was all pretty much circumstantial and based on that one guy's testimony. Yeah. And then the fact that she was tricked into saying that she was there. I know. But I don't think she ever, that, that makes her, you know, an accomplice, an accessory, but she didn't confess to doing it. No, she never did. Like, I, I know you've mentioned this already, and I know it's it's actually true that that whole part where they had a, a police plant who was pretending to be someone to give her an alibi, that was actually true. They mm. did do that to her. Yeah, and again, I just, I feel like she was very much cornered into this. And who knows, maybe she was involved, maybe she was the getaway car, maybe she was there when the murder actually happened. I just feel that the way this movie portrays it, and I know the in, in actuality the three guys were put to death, but the way this movie portrays it is it's just her, right? Like that those dudes aren't going to actually be put to death, the other two fellows? Or are they? Did they talk about that? I think the movie ends right after her execution. So, you know, you're led to believe that they will be, but you don't okay. actually see anything about okay. it. I guess the only one that gets away is the the fellow who wanted her to come to Mexico with him. Yeah, um, that turned state's evidence and right. testified against okay. everybody. Sure. So there are two books that you can check out. One by Bill Walker that came out in 1961 called The Case of Barbara Graham. It's based on an article that he wrote called I Want to Live Hoax, Exposing Hollywood, um, where he was talking about how she actually is guilty and this film made it look like she isn't. There was a book by Kathleen A. Carnes in 2013 called Proof of Guilt, Barbara Graham and the Politics of Executing Women in America. And it takes the viewpoint that she was the female dupe of male victimizers who murdered Monaghan. Hmm, I could see that. This book is highly critical of the many sensationalized popular media treatments of Bloody Babs. So those are two different books you can check out on the two different aspects. One saying, yes, she is guilty, and one saying, uh, well, she may not be. That's a, it would be interesting to read those back to back and then see how you feel afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I really want to check those out. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to find this actual interview. So if anybody 
knows where to find it, I'd love, you know, let me know. I'd love to read the whole thing or watch it. But Robert Osborne from Turner Classic Movies, he did an interview with Susan Hayward and he asked whether or not she believed that Barbara Graham had been innocent. And according to Osborne, she hesitated to answer, but ultimately admitted that based on her own research, she thought Barbara Graham was guilty. Hmm. Oh, yeah, you did tell me that. I don't know. I don't know either. I, you know, and that's, I feel like to me that that really wasn't the point anyways of the film. The, the film seemed to take a stance that she was most likely innocent. That seemed to be what the director wanted us to feel. That's how I took it. However, I don't feel like that was the biggest takeaway of the film. I mean, it was an exploration of this woman and what she went through, but also, like we were talking about, kind of how our justice system works. And she was kind of tried in the media, mm-hmm. and everybody was against her. Yes. So how much... Now, obviously, I don't know back then. Nowadays, you know, juries aren't allowed to read newspapers or online articles and stuff while a trial is going on. True. Was that a thing back then? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it it could have been something that was, you know, um, you know, so sensationalized at the time. It might have been difficult for um, jury members not to have been to consume that information, you know, while the trial was going on. Right. And I know that's a big issue nowadays with juries because, you know, there's access to everything. So by the time oh, you yeah. actually get to jury selections, everybody's already heard of the case if it's if it's a big one Gosh, and yeah. probably already has preconceived notions about it. So how do you go in to something with an open mind believing that somebody is innocent until proven guilty? I guess I guess it, I, there must be. um I imagine it, it, what a job for those the lawyers to you know to to question those potential jury members beforehand to really like get you know a sense of you know whether or not they've been biased to the case itself or if they have biases that you know would relate to whatever the said crime was. Have you ever been on a jury? No, I've wanted to actually. I'm just curious what it would be like. But um, the one time I was actually um, summoned, I filled out a little questionnaire online and they rejected me. That's not, that's not how it works. They just said they didn't need me. Really? Yeah. Huh. But I don't know, like, you, there could be a million things. It could be that there was something about the way I answered a question that they didn't, you know, that, that made me dismiss. But it also could have been, I mean, a hundred other things. They might have just, yeah, I don't know. You just never know what, what might cause you to not even be called in. But my husband, he, he went, I want to say, maybe maybe it was my dad. Somebody I know went, went and was... Um, was in there, answered a question, and then was dismissed. So actually, like, went in. But I've never, you know, I've never gotten to the point where I've actually gone gone to the court. What about you? I, yes. You've been on a jury? Uh, yes, a traffic court. <laughs> oh! You know what? In some ways, I bet that that's better than, like, a high-stakes case. Because that would, that would give me a lot of anxiety. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I still feel kind of guilty about it, though. Like, without, sure. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure the guy was guilty. It was right after they passed that law here in Texas where if a cop has somebody pulled over on the side of the road that you have to either slow down to like 30 miles an hour or get over to the other lane. And he didn't. Mm. And he was like, oh, I couldn't slow down and I couldn't move over. And Mm. so we found him guilty and, you know, we made him pay a fine. But I'm like, did we make him pay too much? I understand how people, I I was young. I think I was like, 19 or 20 that's kind of you to be concerned it does you know again at least it was low stakes in the sense of yes no money is that that's very difficult to have to pay a fine um for most people but but at least it wasn't um 
you know, a violent crime. That's something that I would be very nervous about being involved in like a murder case um, because that, that, those can go on for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I've gotten so many jury summons before, but the only other time that I actually had to go in, it was funny because they picked all the people on the right and the left side of me except me. No. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but you know, actually I say no, but then in most cases it's good because then you can go back to work or yeah. whatever, you know, you, you have uh, commitments you have at the time. I did have a friend who was almost on a murder trial once in San Antonio. It was a case about a guy who was charged with killing this guy and then like chopping him up and barbecuing oh, him. Oh no, oh no, um, no, 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 no. And she, she really, really wanted to be on that jury I was like, I don't think I could stomach. I don't think that. I could either. To be honest, I I'm I'm much better like behind the scenes, like listening to things. Yeah. Um, but I, I listening to information, processing it. But I I the stakes of being on an actual jury for something that was again where you know there was a violent crime or something of that nature. I I would be I would be too nervous. I don't think I would I would want to be. Yeah. No. Selected. And that was one of the questions that they asked you too. Would you be able to live with yourself if you had to find them guilty? And so Man, that's tough. So if you know tough people question. who said no, they could, they didn't think they'd be able to live with that, were dismissed. Oh sure, yeah, of course. <laughs> and be like, I would be out of there. I feel guilty about me too. giving a guy a traffic fine. I couldn't <laughs> be on a murder jury. No, sure. I have I have some an intense guilt complex, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do well either. <laughs> um, but I did want to talk a little bit about Susan Hayward because yeah. you know she is this movie basically. Yeah. She was actually born Edith Mariner, Mar- Mariner. That looks right. And she was only 57 when she died. Oh, She died sad. of a brain tumor. Apparently, a bunch of other people who worked on this particular movie with her also ended up dying of cancer. Yikes. So they think that um, they all developed cancer from the radioactive fallout of these atomic bomb tests done in the area where they filmed the John Wayne movie, The Conqueror. Oh my gosh. So that's, that's awful. I mean, that's really young to oh, me. Oh, absolutely. She does have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Aww. She received five Academy Award nominations and won one. She was married twice, had two children. She started off as a model, but she went to Hollywood to audition for Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. Oh, wow. Obviously didn't get that part, but she went on to have a really good career. Mm-hmm. That she was really outstanding in this. It's a very difficult role, and I think she captured the complexity of the character you know, very, very well. She was very believable. I just want to say one more thing about her, and then I have a question for you. Sure. So she said she was fascinated by the contradictory traits of personality in Barbara Graham. That Barbara Graham had an extraordinary effect on everyone that she met, and that's why she wanted to play the part. She was first juvenile, then an adult delinquent, arrested on bad check charges, perjury, soliciting, and a flood of misdemeanors. But somewhere along the line, she was a good wife and mother. I read her letters, sometimes literate, often profound. She loved poetry and music, both jazz and classical. None of this seemed to square with the picture drawn at other times of the, during the trial. She said she studied the final transcript and became fascinated by the woman, and she simply had to play her. She seemed, I mean, as we all know, we all contain multitudes. I think, you know, uh, Susan did a great job of capture, 
capturing the multitudes within Barbara Graham. So you had told me when we were watching this, you're not fond of a lot of the older style movies. And I know a lot of people aren't. Like my dad hates black and white movies. (laughs) Now, granted, his idea of a really good movie is anything starring Steven Seagal. So... (laughs) You know, sometimes, but but there are movies that I've watched with him mm-hmm. that he wouldn't ordinarily like, yeah. um, you know, black and white or older things that he later did say that he really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But on a whole, you know, he, he doesn't like stuff like that. And neither does my brother-in-law. There are some that he likes, but he's more of a, you know, contemporary movie person. Sure. <laughs> so people have kind of set in their tastes of yeah, movies. totally. Based on, I think you said the acting style a lot of times, that really over dramatic <laughs> style um, yeah. is what you don't connect with. Yeah, I guess that's the best way to describe it is that um, I don't I don't connect with it in the same way in which I might with something that's, you know, perhaps more modern and more realistic. I want I do want to say that I, there have been plenty of older films that I have actually enjoyed a whole lot and even loved. So it's not like a blanket statement <laughs> that the, they're all this way. But you're right. I think the things that I sometimes have a harder time connecting with is the acting style in older films can often be a bit melodramatic. Um, sometimes even the shots or the music can sometimes feel melodramatic in a way that makes it more challenging for me to connect with it on, on a emotional level. So yes, because of that, I, I feel like I tend to, I don't seek out movies, I would say like beyond the 1970s. But that's not, again, across the board. There's plenty of movies we have in our collection that are that are older that we've really, really enjoyed. But you're, you're right. I always get nervous saying that because I, I don't want to offend anyone. Um, and I think that, I also think I didn't live in that time period. So I always try to remind myself of that as well, that you know, if I were living in that that period of time watching those films, my experience would probably be 100% different than it is as someone living in 2019 watching the film. Well, and that's one thing in a podcast that I was listening to that they were talking about. If you don't understand some of the cultural references of things, mm-hmm. then the movies don't make as much sense to you. Sure. Now, I grew up with my nana, who is now 95, and my parents are a bit older. There's a lot of things that I know about because of that. Mm-hmm. But if if you don't have that, or you know, you are of a younger generation that's even that much farther removed from these things, mm-hmm. then it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to you. Right. Like, to it baffles me. I you know I know that time moves on, but the age of kids now that weren't even born when nine eleven happened. Oh, Poof. wow, yeah. Just you know their cultural understanding of things. It's like that that you don't even understand what that was like because. They weren't here, so how would they understand what some of these, you know, older things when it couldn't even be stated sure. because of because of the censorship and things like that? So you have to kind of read between the lines. How would they understand that? No, that's a really good point. What I, you know, I try to remind myself of, just like you've mentioned already, um, is that I'm, I didn't live in that time period. And so some of the styles, again, of acting, of directing, of everything come with the time period, come with the culture. Um, and so it, it's something I can appreciate. I just perhaps can't connect with in the same regard that I might connect with something that's more modern. And let me also add, there's plenty of modern films 
that are, are not good. So it just because something is modern also doesn't mean that I immediately connect with it. But that's something that I've noticed as I've gotten older that it might be why I don't seek these type of films out as often. Is there anything that you've seen, like maybe a classic that you were like, oh, no, not that one. Or, oh, yeah, that that was... That was good. I think that one holds up. Yeah, you know what? When I one of the ones that I I grew up with, my father showed it to me when I was pretty young, and we, my husband and I, recently watched it. He had never seen it, and we both thoroughly enjoyed it. Is um, Wait Until Dark uh, with Audrey Hepburn. Um, I know it's also a play. I don't know if it was a play first or a film first. That I'm not sure of. But it, it's done often um, as a play. The film is fantastic. It's frightening. Audrey Hepburn's performance is wonderful. The cast is wonderful. I was totally engrossed. I, I loved it when I was a kid, and so I was interested to see how I would feel watching it as an adult, and I still loved it. So that's one that I, I would recommend to any listener if you haven't seen it. It's a, it's a great, um, suspenseful uh, a film from, I want to say, the 1960s, maybe? And you know what? I, I shouldn't say without knowing. 67. So what what grade would you give this movie? It's a wonderful question. Um... I would give it like a B plus, like a good solid B plus. I think that the acting was was very good. I I did not feel you know disconnected. The the only disconnection I felt I suppose was just that it, it, you know it's such a, a situation that I have no um, really background or knowledge in, um, and I didn't know about Barbara Graham before watching this film. But I thought it was well directed, well acted. I like the description in that review about that it's realistic, but also um, you know, has these real staccato beats, just like the, the opening shot that we talked about. Um, there's a lot of things that are quite jarring and quite, you know, uh, in your face and sort of frightening, which adds to the suspense of the whole piece. Even though we know what's going to happen, it's, I still found myself on the edge of my seat quite a bit. So for that reason, I definitely think it's worth seeing. I will say it's not something I'm going to watch again. There are quite a few movies that I have enjoyed, but I won't watch again because they're very difficult to watch. It's definitely not a feel-good movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this isn't one that you're just like, huh, let's just, you know, just pop it in. Just have, have a fun date night. <laughs> yeah. It's light and fluffy. Oh. What about you, Laura? What, what, what grade would you give this? I feel like a high B, low A. Mm-hmm. My main criticism of it is the length. You are absolutely right. I'm glad you pointed that out because it, it was too long. <laughs> too long, too long. Otherwise, the performances are great. Mm-hmm. Um, the directing, I think, is really good. Robert Wise also directed The Haunting, which we did for our Halloween episode last year. That is a scary movie. And both of these, he he treats the female characters very well. And Agreed. just the shots, like that opening where it makes you feel all off balance and kind of drunk, I thought was just really great and... Again, the, the framing with the bars around the mm-hmm. face, it just just was a, there were just a little bit, I think they could have shaved off time-wise. That's a, that's a good critique, and I, I thoroughly agree. So, do you think this passes the Bechtel test? I think it does. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there were two um, additional, aside from, you know, Barbara Graham, there were two additional female characters with names, there was Peg, who she talked to on several occasions, and there was Barbara, the nurse from the prison cell, who she spent quite a while talking with the evening before her execution. There was also Rita, her cellmate. Rita, her cellmate, the one who um, 
threw her under the bus, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, who who got out of prison because she helped. <laughs> I misused literally, sorry. <laughs> figuratively, figuratively threw her under the bus. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's multiple women with names. Yeah. And their conversations a lot of times are about something other than a man. Well, <laughs> I was I was thinking about that, and I don't know if this counts. I mean, I don't think it was always like romantically discussing a man. I know a lot of times the conversations did revolve around, like with Pagano, around um, perhaps the men that she were accusing her, you know, that she was accomplices with, or men, but not maybe not necessarily in a romantic way. Though sometimes yes, in a romantic way. So I don't know if in that regard, it, I would have to time it. I don't know if there's ever sixty seconds straight. There might be. It's close enough. I feel like it's very close either way. Let me put it this way. There's more female characters with names that have more diverse conversations in this than a lot of movies made nowadays. That's exactly right, which is terrifying. (laughs) No, but I I think it does. And why do you think this is an important movie for us to talk about? You know, I... I know we've talked about this already, but what I really took away from it and what I found myself thinking about for several days after watching it was the death penalty and, and capital punishment and people who have such diverse feelings about it. I've always I've always felt, um, since I understood what the death penalty was, that I was inherently just going to be against it. But as I've gotten older, you know, there are things that have, information that I've you know consumed and um, things that I've learned that have made me question that feeling. But... Ultimately, I've always come back to kind of my core belief that I, I'm against it. And this sort of just reminded me one of the reasons why I've always felt that way. Um, and it's the fact that there is always the chance that someone that's innocent is going to be executed. And whether or not Barbara Graham is innocent, you know, I, that I don't know. But we do know that innocent people get executed in this country. And that I, you know, I can't stand behind ever. I also know, and and I watched that John Oliver clip that you s- sent, and I know you're going to link to it, that it's true that it, it, it is not something that we ha- There's no statistical evidence showing that it has deterred violent crime in any of the states or countries where where they still use the death penalty as a form of punishment. Um, it It's not that those areas have seen like a, a, a d- decrease or d- drastic decrease of violent crime. So if it's not deterring it, that's another reason that I, I can't feel or I can feel that, that, that there's no reason why, why we should have it. I don't know. Ultimately, I think the fact that it gets you thinking about capital punishment and talking about it is, is important. It's still a relevant film today for that very reason. What about you? What, what makes you feel that it's important? That reason, and I also think it really highlights how people get trapped into a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she didn't have things that other people grew up with you know she was born to an unwed teenage mother who ended up in reform school Mm -hmm. she went to reform school you know it's when you're stuck in a life and you don't have a lot of resources or options to get out of it it, it's hard there there was a, a new play that I saw a reading of recently the main character in the play was talking about how you could go get a job making minimum wage, which is what, like seven twenty-five an hour, I think. Maybe it's eight twenty-five now, which is not a living wage. Right. Or you could go and sell drugs and be able to help your mom pay the rent and have food and things like that. And how 
how do you make that choice? Mm-hmm. If, if you choose to go sell drugs and make that money, then you run that risk of going to jail. So yes, you've done something bad, but you don't have the resources to go do something else necessarily. And oh, yeah. what, what do you do? Right. That's what she said. Have you ever been desperate? Do you know what it's like not to know what to do? And I feel like that's something that this movie really highlights. Yeah, definitely. A real bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not not definitely not a a, a happy uh, rom com or a light a light film by any means. Yeah. If if you're going into this, perhaps pour yourself a, a glass of wine if you drink, or you know, chocolate or so, something that can you know uh, ease your way into this um, heavy film. Yeah. <laughs> what would you recommend? recommend um so i was thinking about this obviously this film a lot of what i took away from it was you know thinking about capital punishment and the death penalty but i couldn't think of a a piece either you know book or documentary or podcast uh, particularly specifically about capital punishment as i mentioned in the beginning i've been on a little bit of a true crime wave lately so there's two podcasts that i really enjoy if you're if you're interested in true crime um and, you know, peeks into, of course, the criminal justice system, which we often get when we, we get true crime stories. One is called Crime Junkies. Uh, it's a great podcast. And then uh, True Crime Obsessed. And then um, if you're looking for a documentary series on Netflix right now, and it, it's been around for quite some time, there's a documentary called The Staircase. I don't know if you've heard of it. My husband and I are almost done watching it. And it's another, you know, really amazing, amazing um, look at not just the criminal justice system, but how a trial works. Um, you get really behind the scenes access to a defense attorney and really kind of everything that goes into a trial, particularly of a large magnitude, like a murder case. And I won't give away anything else about it, but it's it's quite fascinating. So I, if, if you're into that, I would definitely recommend taking a look at The Staircase on Netflix. I'm going to have to check that one out. Thank you. It's good. What about you, Laura? Uh, my recommendation is the movie Monster from 2003. It's written and directed by Patty Jenkins and starring Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci. It's about a serial killer who was a former prostitute who was executed in Florida in 2002 for killing six men. Wow. You know what? I, I have seen Monster. It's just been a long time. It was really, really well done, I remember. Patty Jenkins? She directed it? Yeah. Same director as Wonder Woman, right? Yeah. Oh, man. She, I'm going to have to rewatch that. I, I loved Wonder Woman so much. Oh, it's such a... Not Wonder Woman. Monster. <laughs> no, sorry, it, it is it's such a... It was so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that in an interview that she wanted to make this story because she actually saw the woman and she was just crying and the the media was painting her as just like this awful woman who was just killing men and stuff she became fascinated with the story and did a lot of research in it it's another one of those that takes like a lot of creative license and kind of smushes things together and stuff but it just it's another woman who just is kind of trapped in this sort of situation makes all these bad choices Mm -hmm. and ultimately you know leads to her own demise because of it but it's really well acted i, I love Charlize theron Me too. Um, and, and i love christina ricci too and they're both really really good in it yeah i remember it's, it's a great film and it's one of those movies that i not that male directors and writers can't 
do a good job with these kind of stories, but I just feel like, especially in 2003, I, I don't know of a guy that would have been able to handle the story in a way that Patty Jenkins did. For sure. She's a fantastic director as well. But I, I agree, the choice to have a female director was absolutely the right one. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, Laura Ray, for being with us again. It's always oh, yeah. such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. This was so much fun to get to, to be a part of Fatal Femmes again. I love you guys. And happy birthday, Nana. Thanks for depressing us. Yay, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Femmes. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemmespodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.